Beloved, let's love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. He who doesn't love doesn't know God, for God is love. By this, God's love was revealed in us, that God has sent his one and only Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God loved us in this way, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love has been perfected in us. Well, all right. Good morning, everybody. Am I on? Am I not? Am I okay? Um, I'm excited to get to be back with you to share some scripture and some thoughts with you today. It's been a long time. We've had like three weeks uh, or I've gotten to just play hooky here on the front row and listen to some great teaching. So this has been good. Uh, if you're just joining us, we've been in a series all summer long called Summer of Love since the end of May. Uh, we have been diving through this first letter from the Apostle John uh, known as First John his letter to the church, and it's just been so good. This morning, we're going to continue uh, where Melissa left off last week. That was so good. And so I invite you to turn, if you have your Bibles, to 1 John chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 7. We're going to go right through verse 12, as you just heard Ringo read, read us there. And while you're headed there, I want, to, uh, I want to take a second and answer a really good question that came in. Uh, it came in through one of our home life groups. Uh, but by the way, we have a, an opportunity for anybody who ever wants to ask a question. If you're sitting there like, oh, I, this brings up a good question. Uh, there's, a, there's a place on our website called Questions for Pastor. And you can just click on that button. Or if you have the church app, you can just click on that button, ask a question. And we love to answer some of those questions. But I want to answer a really, really good one that came through. And it was this. It said, uh, have you been teaching on love? because it's a good subject, or is it aimed at us, the congregation, as something you see that needs reinforcement? And I just think this is such a great question, and I, I, I can tell what the question behind the question there is. Uh, but I would answer in just two ways. First of all, um, in this series, we are, you know, by the leading of the Holy Spirit, uh, doing a study through the book of the Bible. We don't always do this, this kind of series, but we're going through 1 John, and 1 John has a lot to say on the subject of love. And so, one of the advantages of doing a series like this uh, is that, you know, rather than just um, sort of jumping around to whatever topic we, we feel like talking about or that we really enjoy talking about, like, there's things that we all, like, enjoy talking about, but this gives us an opportunity to let the scriptures talk to us and to lead us. We get, we're getting led here by the, by the scriptures. And so we let God speak to us from the Bible. And over the course of a series like this, we get an even, the, the good thing is we get an even richer and deeper understanding of what the text is saying that sometimes you don't get if you just jump over and read a verse from a place. You really don't get the whole context of what's going on here. And I feel like, if, boy, can you say that you're starting to get a really rich understanding of this letter that John is writing us? I am. I am. Um, and and uh, so, now we do, like I said, we do those topical type series as well. We'll be starting a series like that in a few weeks when we, we finish up First John. 
But we have found great value over these years in, in the balance of doing that, the balance between these two kinds of studies. And so reason number one, you know, why am I talking about love so much? Well, because the scriptures we're reading talk about love. So that's why we're talking about love. And so we get to, this is an opportunity for us to sort of submit to that and just say, Lord, lead us, feed us, whatever it is you have for us, feed your sheep here. The second thing I would just say about this also is, like I said, that I, think, I think kind of the question behind the question there is, hey, pastor, you keep talking about love. Are you saying we're not very loving? And I would say, absolutely not. Absolutely not. In fact, I truly, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, I truly believe this is one of the most loving congregations I've ever encountered. And um, in my uh, conversations with folks from outside this church, I can absolutely say the people that you interact with, uh, that would support that as well. I, I talk to so many folks who either come to this church and, and then let me know, or, or they're visiting, or they, they encounter you from outside, and they, they, they tell us over and over and over what a loving group of people this is. And this body of believers here at Generations Church is, I think, just one of the most loving congregations there is. Now, could we get better? Yeah, yeah, of course we can, right? That's the good answer, right? In fact, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, I should, uh, as I'm growing and maturing, I should be more loving tomorrow than I am today. I should be more loving today than I am, than I was yesterday, right? So oh, we always want to be getting better. And here's the thing, too. Uh, we don't talk about love all the time so that, you know, you'll stop being mean and act more loving. We talk about love all the time because you are loving, right? And you are loving because we talk about love all the time. That love is one of our core values here. You know, that's, that's the reason we talk about that. There's a, there's a saying that, uh, you know, what gets reinforced becomes reality. And that's really true here. That is really true here. And so no matter what we're talking about throughout the year uh, in our different sermons, we're always going to bring it back to love. Um, and especially as we're going to see today, um, this isn't just because, you know, this church is like a bunch of hippies who really likes being nice or something like that. No, we really believe there is a power. There is there's something revolutionary that happens in our understanding of God's love, that it is fundamental. It is the core of who He is and why we exist. Uh, so case in point, let's dive into today's passage and uh, we're going to be talking about love, but I pray that our eyes are, and ears are open to a real fresh word here. Uh, so, so don't enter into this thinking, okay, I got this. I know everything the Lord's going to say today because he surprised me over these past few weeks. I'm telling you what, over this passage. And so I think it's going to be good. Here we go. First John 4, starting verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. Anybody raised in the 70s and 80s? You know this song, because love is from God and everyone is born, is born of God and knows God and who does not love does not knows God for God is love. First John 4, 7 and 8. All right. All right. right out of the gate, right out of the gate, John starts this passage with this theme of love, it's in neon lights, baby, right? It, he says, we're going to talk about love. The word beloved, we've talked about this before here, is this Greek word agape toy. It's kind of, he loves to t call the congregation that, the agape toy. It's that the word agape love is embedded in that, right? In other words, the loved ones, loved ones. The next word he uses is agapomen. That's the let us love. So he's, he starts off in the Greek, agape toy, agapomen, right? Loved ones, let's love. And, and so he's letting us know what this is going to be all about. In fact, uh, over the course of these six verses that we're looking at today, the word love appears 15 times, right? 
That's a lot of agape, right? But what John says about love is what's really fascinating to me today. He talks about how love comes from God, and it's here that John says one of the most mind-bending revelations in the Bible, and that is that God is love. I mean, this sentence right here just changes everything we might have been tempted to think about God. God is love. This isn't, this isn't some kind of a sentimental piece of poetry. It's not an abstract statement. This is a concrete, radical reality. And it's an important clue for us as to who this God is that we worship, the God who is the ground of all being, right, who holds the universe together. At the core of the universe is love. Love is who God essentially is. That'll change you. That'll make you shout. Uh, why is love a primary part of our DNA at this church, of our values? Well, it is because the Bible tells us that love is not just one of our attributes, uh, one of God's attributes. It's not just like something he does on the side, like, well, God is some of this, but you know, it's an, he also does this. He loves, but he's also justice. No, everything about God, everything is love. It's not just a behavior of God. It's not just a metaphor for God. Love is the essence, the expression of who God is and what he does. So that means that everything that God does, everything from creation to redemption, from, from judgment to discipleship to grace to mercy, everything he does is motivated and shaped by love. Amen. If it's not love, it's not God. That's, there's a Scott Haleism right there. And that means that God's love, he, he doesn't love in isolation. Because love, by its very definition, there, there needs to be an other, right? So he doesn't love in isolation. He loves in relation. And so he's not some, love isn't, God isn't some generic, impersonal force, you know, just floating out there. He, he is a living, personal being. And, and the human race we had the privilege of witnessing that being in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. So whatever you think about God, whatever you read about God, it has to be seen through that lens of love. It has to. If it's not love, it's not God. Um, but there's more to this story that John's telling us than just trying to describe the identity of God. He's also trying to paint a picture of our identity in this passage. And so he uses a really interesting phrase in verse 7, at the end of verse 7, uh, if you notice, he, he teaches us something about ourselves when he says, everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Now, it, in just a bit, he says that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. We've seen that in John three sixteen. the only begotten Son. He's the only Son in that sense. But here he says, everyone who loves is born of God. So in another sense, in, in a different kind of sense, we, we are all children of God if we love. This is a powerful claim. If you love with this God kind of love, you are God's offspring. If you love rightly, you're a son or a daughter of God. So what that means is that in order to become, to, to be born of God, you have to do this thing called love, right? We should be doing this thing called love. And so you might wonder, well, is that a high bar? Is that really difficult? Is that a low bar? Is that an easy thing or a hard thing to become a son or a daughter of God? And the way John presents it, I have to say in this passage, it's, it's, almost, 
John almost feels like it's almost involved. It should be involuntary. Like it's something that, because God is love. And so there's something about us as image bearers of God, the way we're, we're made, this should be in our new nature to love. If we're living the life that God intends us to live. And so if you're filled with the God who is love, doesn't it make sense? It, it, it's in your new nature to love. It should be, right? You, you know, you don't have to teach a little baby to love its mother. It just, it seems to love innately. A little baby just reaches out in, in total love and surrender. You don't have to teach a parent to love their child. They just love innately. It just comes right out of us. It's, it's, it's what we do. Now, what we also know from Scripture is that there is a sickness in this world. This toxin that has sort of infected the system. And we call that sin. That's the toxin. And it messes everything up and it corrupts our capacity to love and be loved. But as we're going to read, there's good news. God's got a cure for that too. Praise the Lord. All right. Now love. When we talk about love, love can mean a lot of different things, can't it? Right? Uh, so what does God mean? What does it mean that God loved us? John goes on to say this. He explains a little bit. In verse 9, he says, God's love was revealed. There's a lot of uh, this theme you'll see repeated throughout this passage about revealing and seeing and what's made manifest. Re God's love was revealed in this way. How? God sent his only son into the world. Why? So that we might live through him. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. The word John uses for this phrase, that we might live, is this word zao. And what's so cool, it's the verb form of the word that we've talked about a whole bunch, which is zoe. Zoe life, right? Zoe is a noun, like to, to Zoe is zao. And, and so th this is great. That we might live is that, that we might Zoe. And if you remember from some of these past weeks, we've brought this up, this Zoe kind of life, it's different than just normal life. There's a normal life you and I live that has its ups and downs and its bad days and good days and that kind of stuff. <clears throat> but Zoe life is the kind of life that Jesus came to offer us. He introduces this life that is full of peace and joy that is unaffected by the ups and downs of our circumstances. That's hard for us to fathom in the natural, isn't it? I mean, however spiritual you are, you still go through the ups and downs, right? And some of it's like really tragic stuff and some of it's really great stuff. But there is a Zoe life that we're invited to live and it is stable and it's constant. It's defined by peace and joy that doesn't fluctuate. And what's so great about the verb here, this zow, um, is that it's not in the past tense or the future tense. It's what's called the present continual tense, which means it is now, this life he came to offer us is available now, not just after we die, right? Come on, that's beautiful. That's awesome. This is a beautiful thing. Then he says this, verse 10, this is love. The world wants to know, what is love, right? What is love, Hadaway saying. Well, here we go, baby. This is what love looks like. In the middle of a world, I promise that was the last time I was singing. In the middle of a world that has some seriously toxic views of love and what is love, this is love. Not that we loved God. That's interesting. So, like, I don't get any points for loving God. No, that's not the ultimate love, is it? But that he loved us and sent his son, who remember is the perfect representation of the father. We, we read that in Hebrews. What did Mel teach us last week? Jesus is what God has to say, 
right? Jesus is what God has to say. He sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. All right, I got a couple minutes. I, I, can I get a little bit nerdy for a couple minutes? I promise it won't be long. Just for a few minutes. <laughs> like, what's new, right? Okay, I, I, I saw that. <laughs> we're we're going to put on like our seminary cap just for a few minutes. Okay, I promise. But this is really interesting and it, it ends up being very, very important. I want to say a couple words about this. Now, if you've been a Christian for very long, you have heard this phrase, atoning sacrifice, atoning sacrifice for our sins. Some of your translations, if you have a Bible out there, some of it, you might see this word propitiation. Anybody heard that word? Amen. Right? We hear about the words. Uh, and, and so, uh, I, I, honestly, I don't favor that word very much for a bunch of reasons I'll explain. Some of your Bibles will use the word expiation. That's another fancy word. I like that word a little better. The NRSV that we're reading here uh, plays it safe with atoning sacrifice, which I like. Um, I'm fine with that too. Why it's important is uh, it has to do with all kinds of theological debates going on. We, we won't get real deep in the weeds here. But theological debates about God's attitude towards man and, and why Jesus died on the cross, like what was really happening there, uh, known as atonement theories. You get into all kinds of theories like that. And I won't get too deep into that. But here's the problem in a nutshell for translators. Everybody remember, this wasn't written in English originally, right? Right, it was written in Greek. The Greek word here that's causing us all this trouble is this word helosmos. You don't have to remember that. It's only found a couple times in the, or maybe three times in the New Testament, this, this word helosmos. It is found a bunch of times in the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament is originally written in Hebrew, but it got translated into Greek, known as the Septuagint. So here's the nerdy part. And what's really interesting is the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, that's what Jesus was reading. Jesus and all his disciples, when they're walking around reading, now they didn't read like this, it was a scroll. <laughs> they're reading it, and the apostles, they're reading from the Greek Old Testament. They didn't read the Hebrew Old Testament. Now, we have access to the Hebrew Old Testament because of all of the Dead Sea Scrolls and all this wonderful stuff. So they're reading the Greek. In that Old Testament, Helosmos shows up a bunch of times because it's connected to a lot of Jewish stuff. Um, the issue is that Helosmos can be translated in several different ways. How many of you know language is messy and culture is sticky? We've said that before. Language is messy and culture is sticky. So, so language, you can make words, you can twist them to kind of mean different things. And culture has a lot of effect on language, right? Just think if I say the word sexuality. Whew, that opens up a can of worms today, right? A hundred years ago, not such a big deal. Everybody knew what we were talking about. Now, not so much, right? Or if I said the word liberal. A hundred years ago, that means a whole different thing than it means today, right? So culture is sticky and language gets messy. So when the new Testament writers use this word, like John, he's using this word, he is not only using a word that had ancient Jewish meaning, uh, because it was connected to the temple worship, um, sacrifices. It was, it was often connected to, sometimes it's translated as the mercy seat uh, in the Old Testament. In addition to that, helasmos is also a word that had great meaning in John's day in the pagan world. It was a hot word in the pagan world that they lived in, that Greek and Roman world. Um, and so when, when the Greek and Roman pagans would use the word helosmos, it referred to when you made a sacrifice to attempt to appease the wrath of the gods. 
So if you go to the temple of Zeus, like you do, or the Athena or whoever it is, you know, over in Ephesus, uh, you made a sacrifice there because you, maybe you were not so good that week and you needed them to not smite you. And so you made a sacrifice to appease the wrath of Zeus and the wrath of Athena or whoever, or you needed them to like rain that week or something like we could really use, you know, so, so, you know, and, and you weren't perfect. And so you needed to make the sacrifice so that they wouldn't smite you. They would be nice to you. And so you did that. Otherwise they would smite you. And so you, you bought off their anger with a sacrifice. This is very common understanding in, in that day. That's just what you did. All your neighbors who were pagans, that's what they were going off to do on Monday, right? I got to go appease the God's sacrifice. You coming with me? Oh, I don't know. You know. So that's the meaning behind the word that then translators, you know, when you get to King James, those guys, they would use in the Bible. So they would, they would translate that with this word propitiation. Propitiation really lines up with that meaning, to appease the wrath of a God. But then when you go back to Jewish culture, it's really different. The Jewish culture, for those thousand years before the New Testament, that word helosbos, it referred to the removal or covering of sin so that you could be reconciled to God. See, it wasn't about appeasing God's wrath. It was about removing the sin. So you can see the object of the word changes. It changes to the sin. That's the word expiation. So some of your, like if you're reading an RSV right now, it'll use the word expiation. Um, And so it was sin, not wrath. In the Jewish mindset, it was sin, not wrath. That was the, the roadblock. Sin was in the way. Sin was always in the way. And so we had to do something to get rid of the sin. And uh, so you had the sacrifices and the scapegoats and all those kind of stuff. So there's continues to be some controversy among scholars and translators as to which word should be used in the Bible. And they basically split into these two camps. The, the Theobros of the Reformation, um, they fell on the side of uh, propitiation which gave rise to a whole uh, systematic theology known as penal substitution theory. We've talked about that. Basically, uh, to oversimplify it, God is angry. He needs somebody to punish. And Jesus steps in and says, God, don't do it. And he absorbs the wrath for us. Uh, And the other camp, they say, whoa, wait a minute. The, The cross isn't so much about something we did to God. The cross is something that happened to us. It, it, he's not the recipient of the action. It's something the cross did to us in our sin. We're the recipients of the work of the cross. And so Jesus isn't like assuaging God's malice towards us. It's actually a revelation of God's love towards us, right? To take away our sin. Um, so he's not just no longer angry at us. He actually removes the sin, um, you could probably see which side I come down on uh, on this. In the Old Testament, in those times in the Old Testament, it's connected to also the word hilasterion, which I mentioned it refers to the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. This is where God would sit uh, as, as like a throne, the, you know, a throne of grace where God offered mercy for his children, the children of Israel that he loved. Hilasterion can, can be defined as the means or the place where forgiveness and reconciliation happens. The means and the place where forgiveness and reconciliation happens. In the New Testament, where is the the mercy seat where we see God enthroned? It's the cross. That's where Jesus is high and lifted up. That's where he is exalted. His most exalted place where his kingship becomes obvious to all is the cross. And rather than get up on the cross and demand this blood sacrifice, to appease his own wrath, which is 
kind of that idea behind propitiation. What we see is God in Christ offering himself as a mercy gift of reconciliation and welcoming us to receive his forgiveness, and it's freely offered. It is by grace that we are saved, not through some kind of violent transitional, transactional religion. Now, having said all that, whichever side maybe you grew up with or you kind of still lean toward right now, that's fine, that's fine. We can, you know, even if you disagree with me, I'm not trying to get you, you have to agree with me at all. We, we can totally be, be friends and brothers. Um, whichever side you come down on, the end result of Jesus' action is the same, isn't it, right? We're reconciled to God. You're reconciled to God. You have been made new from the inside out. But what matters, what does matter is that it can change how you see God. What do you think about God? What do you think about His character? What do you think about how He sees you? How much do you really believe the passage we're reading today? So, I think of it like this. Tell me which makes more sense. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God. Everyone who loves is born of God, knows God, for God is love. I mean, God's love was revealed among us in this way, that he sent his only son into the world. Notice, by the way, John specifically here is, he's talking about the love of the Father. He's saying God, but we would say he's kind of talking about the Father here, right? Because he's saying he sent his son. So it's not Jesus sent Jesus. It's the Father. So there's, some, there's something about the love of the Father that's in question here, right? Everybody knows Jesus loves us, right? That's not hard to believe. Jesus is lovable, right? He's not hard for even the world to like. They like him. But what about the Father? Does he really like us or is Jesus like just buying off his hatred, right? In this is love that the Father, that he loved us and sent his Son to thwart his own wrath. Does that make sense? Or does it make more sense to say, in this is love, that he loved us and sent his Son to remove our sins and reconcile us to himself? Uh, The theologian Bradley Jursak, he writes this, when we speak of Christ's sacrifice, do we imagine sacrifices as offerings of appeasement, like that of a pagan of the pagan religions? No. For Christians, sacrifice is a facet of self-giving love. It's more like the sacrificial love of a mother when giving birth to a child. So everything you moms ever went through to give birth to a child, that was a sacrifice of something. But you didn't do it like to appease the wrath of the doctor, right? <laughs> you did it because of love for the, for the child. It was just what had to be done, right? You, you knew it's what had to be done. Or the self-sacrifice of a first responder rushing into a burning building to save someone trapped in the flames. This is way more descriptive of God's sacrifice for us than a Zeus figure begrudgingly agreeing not to destroy us. So see, what you believe about God matters. What you believe about God matters. When you go to the Lord this week and you're asking Him for healing in your body, When you ask him for forgiveness of a sin or you're asking him for deliverance or reconciliation in a relationship, what you believe about God matters. Do you believe he is ready to freely give that to you or he's like, I don't really like you, but I guess because of what Jesus did. I mean, is that what you believe about God matters, what you believe about his character? 
But again, the one thing all Christians can't believe, agree on, me and all my Calvinist brothers and sisters, I can agree with them on this, is that because of Jesus, there is something he did on the cross that changed everything. We are reconciled to God, and it wasn't anything you or I deserved, amen? Uh, it's nothing we can earn. You are never going to have to make another sacrifice in a temple because of what Jesus did. He did it once and for all, and whatever debt you owed, whatever sins you committed, whatever baggage you've been carrying, Jesus says, I have taken care of the debt. I have forgiven the sin. Just accept it and follow me and live this supernatural Zoe life. That sure sounds like a loving God to me. That's a lot of generosity. So, for those of us who are here this morning who are maybe suffering through, through the crippling entanglement of sin, it continues to dog you, it just grips you, and the sins that you have, they just feel, they're hidden, and you feel shame around it. It's, it's become like this yoke around your neck. The good news to you guys is this incredibly unique one and only Son of God came to say to you, shame is gone. Amen. It is gone. Your sin is no more. Don't be in bondage to it. I got you covered. That's what Jesus tells us. You don't have to live in worry. You can trust me. I will take care of it, and I promise you. Oh, that's such good news. Praise God. Praise God. Now, what are we going to do with all this beautiful love that God has just lavished on you? Well, verse 11, beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. Amen. Wow. Right? I love how John just brings us right back down to earth, right? He just lifts us up with all this beautiful, all this love talk. And then he sobers us up, right? Sober up, buttercup. He says, I, he brought you to the heights of God is love, demonstrates this tangible expression of love in the person of Jesus Christ. And, and, and just where, you know, we're attempted to uh, just like go lay on the beach and be like, yeah, we're good. Me and God, woo. He, he says, no, no, no. Uh, what that means is you got to love each other. It's the same way he started this passage, if you remember, in verse 7. It's the same thing Jesus told us. Jesus told us in the gospel of John, a new command I have for you, love one another. By your love for one another, the world will know that you are my disciples. I've loved you, so love one another. Wow. Well, John uh, finishes this passage we're looking at today in a, in a way that is uh, sort of puzzling, a little bit puzzling to say. He says in verse 12, no one has ever seen God. Hmm. No one has ever seen God. Now, certainly that is true in one sense. Uh, no one has seen God the Father. Even those folks in the Old Testament, you know, who were like, Abraham was a friend of God, and we see these things. Uh, they encountered God in some way, but they never saw the full glory of God. No, no one ever was witnessed the entire universal ground of all being who is love before them. Because as they said, I'm going to die if I see that right? You cannot see God and live is, is what it was a Jewish saying. And that's true. You, can't, you couldn't possibly witness that in your brain, not immediately scramble. So what they saw was a representation. They saw a representation of the person. But we also know that, uh, that God demonstrates uh, his, his self in the person of Jesus Christ, Right? 
Um, John says that back in chapter one. That's how he begins this letter, remember, with that. He, he, he keeps saying, you know, guys, we've seen and we witness Christ himself in the flesh. And so this is an interesting statement. If Jesus is God, what is John saying here? Uh, a couple of years back, Melissa and I went through, uh, we're going through maybe one of the hardest times in our life. I won't go into much detail, but it was very difficult. Uh, you know, back in 2020, <laughs> the whole world was blowing up, you know, with COVID and everything else and um, just political strife and all kinds of things were happening. And, and we were going through just so much together. We suffered together side by side. Turmoil we were going through, turmoil in the church, uh, in, in, our, in our country, and, and then turmoil in relationships that were close to us, loss of loved ones. Her, her sweet mother passed away. And so there were ways that she suffered and I suffered. And some of it, we, we were, we'd suffered together. And then other ways, it felt like suffering that felt like I was alone in, in, at times. And it was a profoundly lonely time. And if you've ever gone through a period of great suffering, you know what that's like. Even, you know, even though you might have your loved one beside you, there's still loneliness involved there, right? And sometimes I remember wishing that God could just be sitting across the table from me, physically present to comfort me. I longed for that. And I realized that when life is simple, like I'm okay with the intangible God. Like, yeah, God's spirit. Yeah, that's cool. What's um, good. But when things are darkest, I need his presence. And I remember when I would be in prayer, and, and looking for comfort and reading these words, which just almost seemed haunting. No one has ever seen God. And in some sense that it can almost, those words just taken by themselves can just sort of exemplify loneliness, right? And there's in such stark contrast too from the preceding verses, which, which focus on God's presence and his love. Today, when I look back on that season of my life, I realize better now the truth of what John says, what he, what he had been saying and what he says next, which is no one had ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. If we love one another, God abides in us. God is most revealed in community as each one of us loves the other. God dwells there. He abides in the love of his children for each other. Jesus said, where two or more gathered, there I am. In the midst, there I am. But notice John, uh, John's promise here. It is conditional. It says, if we love one another, then God abides in us and his love is perfected. It's made manifest. His love is, is on display for the world to see. If we love one another. And, and John here, he's just, he's like this kindly fatherly pastor here who's saying, kids, listen, God is only manifested when his children love one another. And when I look back in my most heartbroken, confused moments of 2020, on into 2021, it always seemed to be one thing that brought peace to soothe my soul and carry me through another day. And it was the love of other people. The love of other people. In a season when, you know, we felt such 
abandonment in different ways. There was always someone, and it was often that same circle of absolute angels in the flesh, uh, and, and you know who you are, who would remind Mel and me of God's goodness and His grace simply by being there, simply by being there, by loving us. And that was probably at a time when we probably weren't much fun to be around to love, right? But they would be there. And so many of you, when, when the love that you show every day to other people, to each other and to people outside, that your generosity and your prayers, the time you spend on each other, right? The time you spend praying for each other or giving someone a ride or just being there and going over to someone's house or fixing something at someone's house or just the ways that you spend with each other. It reveals the reality of God in a really tangible way. It, it is through the communal expression of God's love that we, we experience God and we see God and we put Him on display. We have a phrase that we've been saying for years, which is no one walks alone. And we don't just say that because it's a cool slogan. We say it both as a declaration of fact, we celebrate that as a fact, but it is also a statement of faith that we live out imperfectly. No one walks alone. But we also say it because it is within our love for one another and our presence with each other that God is made manifest to the world. That's what Jesus said. When you love me, the world will take notice. So in a minute here, we're going to take communion. Let me get mine out. If you have your elements there, you can get those ready. Uh, we have communion elements at the back of the auditorium. If you weren't able to, if you didn't get one when you walked in, you can get one there. And communion is so special because we get to reenact what real love looks like. We, just were, we were just told by the Apostle John, what is real love? Jesus shedding his blood and offering his body to be broken so that we might live. And I love, uh, there's some words that I love, they bear repeating, that God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. The character of God is not found in the wrath of some pagan deity and what they require of you. The character of God is found in what he did at Calvary for you. God is defined by love, and love is defined by the cross. So I want us to think about these elements, maybe a little differently for some of us today. In light of this passage, I want us to consider, for, for those of us here today who are maybe struggling with sin, you just, that's been an anchor around your neck. And maybe, maybe that image of the atonement, the sacrifice, the clearing away of your sins forever... Maybe that's the image uh, that is most profound for you this morning, and, and you most need that. And so I invite you, as you're holding these elements, these symbols of, of the sacrificial atonement, with that in mind. Now, some of you, sin may not be the main thing that you're worried about. Maybe there's a lot, for you, it's just a lot of suffering going on in your life. Just struggle, just like every day just seems, ugh, just like the universe is against me. And so I would invite you to take and eat and drink from these elements and in doing so receive healing for you, healing for your mind, healing for your body, for your heart, for your emotions. Because uh, Jesus did not save you 
just so that you can continue living suffering, living in misery for a while, and then go to heaven when you die. He saves you so that you can truly and really and truly live for the first time starting right now. That's why he saves you. And if you're here today and you need, what you need is comfort, some peace of mind from just way too much heartbreak. I want to remind you that Jesus is here. He's here to walk by your side when you need that. He's here to carry you on his shoulders when you just can't walk anymore. Because that's what he does. He loves. It is his nature. He cannot but love. And so maybe for you, the blood that washes away the sins of the sinner and tears down the walls for the outcast, that same blood for you, uh, symbolized in this juice, it can be the life that animates you from the inside out. Let the blood of Jesus course through your veins and fill you with life and joy. Let the bread, which is his body, bring nutrients to your body to bring you life. Amen. So many people look to Jesus for what happens when they die, but Jesus is about revealing what can happen when you're ready to live. Amen. And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, he took a cup and he poured it out. And he said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And every time you do this, take these elements. Do this in remembrance of me. Right? These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Thank you, Lord. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Thank you, Lord. Will you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, God, I thank you that you are love. I pray that you would just take these words spoken today and anoint them with your Holy Spirit because there are no words that we can say on our own that don't just fall flat. There's no way we can comprehend, Lord God, the height or depth or length or width of your love, Lord God. Your love goes beyond all ability to comprehend it, to imagine it. So God, I thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ. And I thank you for the cross. Today, Lord, for those who, who might be here that just cannot grasp the idea that God is love because they'd never come to the foot of the cross. I, I pray, Lord, that you would draw them there today. And God, that you would help them to understand that you demonstrated your love for us on the cross. God, for those of us who, who do claim to have a relationship with you, Lord, for, for, for us, I pray that we would love one another. Help us to love one another well. Not because it's the nice thing to do, because you are love and you fill us. And as we live in you, we can't help but do anything else but love. So help us to understand it and to grasp it. God, as we worship you, I pray that you would make your love real to us today, every day this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, stand to your feet. Our prayer partners are coming forward right now. They would love to pray with you about anything going on in your life. If you do want to say yes to Jesus, that relationship with the God who is love, come forward and let them just pray with you. Take that next step.
It's a beautiful, a beautiful, it'll be the greatest next step you've ever taken. Whatever's going on in your life, they would love to pray with you about it and agree with you in faith about it. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you in this day that we're living in. Grace and peace be with you. Amen.